Hi, and welcome to The Crossover. In life, we meet many interesting people along the way, people with diverse backgrounds, all of which have their own story. Borja Kwan is fascinated with people and the intricacies of each individual's journey, big and small. In all of his interviews, there's one pattern that seems to be common. How we do one thing is often how we do everything. The disciplines that are required to be successful in one particular area cross over to all channels of our lives. No matter where we come from or what we do, what he has learned from talking to people is best said by famous writer and poet Maya Angelou. We are more alike, my friends, than we are unalike. On this podcast, you will learn the stories, secrets, and skills from smart and interesting people. They've carved a path like many influential pioneers of our past. Our hope is that their wisdom and practical advice will have a positive impact on your life, as well as those around you. If self-improvement is your obsession, then you've come to the right place. And now, it's time to cross over. Today, I sat down with Bill Flynn, Chief Catalyst of Catalyst Growth Advisors. Bill has more than 30 years of experience working for and advising hundreds of companies, including startups, where he has a long track record of success. He is a sought-after speaker for peer advisory organizations such as YPO and well-known business conferences. Bill is also a multi-certified growth coach, has a certificate with distinction in the Foundations of Neuroleadership, and is a certified predictive index partner. He released his first book in March of 2020 called Further, Faster, The Vital Few Steps That Take the Guesswork Out of Growth. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation with Bill. So great talking to you today. Thanks for uh, joining the uh, podcast here. Would love to kind of get a little bit of, uh, you know, for anybody who's listening, uh, some background. So maybe you could start by telling us a little bit about yourself and, and how you ended up where you are today. Sure. Thanks, Boha. And I appreciate it. I'm honored to be uh, invited on the program. So my background is pretty simple. I was a startup guy for many, many years, about 25 years. I did 10 of them in a row. I was five for 10. And at one point I was five for six. I should have probably stopped at that point, but I wasn't smart enough and I kept going. But about four or five years ago, I uh, asked myself, did I want to do an 11th? And the answer was yes. But you know, I kind of wanted to figure out if I could find a way to interview of a founder because my last four didn't go that well. And I also had this interest in coaching. Uh, I got an ability to do a little bit of coaching in around 2008, 2009 due to some circumstances that happened to me. And I'm happy to talk about those later, but I decided to, to give it a go. So four years ago, 2015, 2016, right around there, I decided to become a leadership team coach. So now what I do is I, I take my 30 years of experience, give or take, of working at those 10 different startups, and I've been an advisor on many different companies as well, and see if I can apply that to other businesses. So I teach them a framework that allows them to help them take the guesswork out of the growth of their business. So that's the quick and dirty. I'm happy to go into a little bit of more in, in any of those areas if you like, but that's sort of my, my history. Yeah, thank you. Tell me a little bit about those circumstances you just referred to. Yeah. So let's see. January 2nd, 2008, the entire technical infrastructure collapsed. No email was being delivered to anyone and customers were leaving in droves. This was my first day as the head of a division of about a $100 million company. And it was really my first day as a head of, of any large group of people. I had about 60 or so people working for me. And I had to figure out what to do. 
So as the GM of this business, it was about, I think we were about eight or $9 million at the time. I had to decide what are we going to do about this? Luckily, we were taken over by a company that had money and they could help with the, the infrastructure issue. So a whole bunch of smart people got working on that. But I had 60 people still working in the organization doing tech support and, and sales and marketing and other things. And anyone who answered the phone was getting yelled at because when you're not delivering email to anyone, they're not really that happy. And this was before Amazon or Office 365. So what I did is I said, look, I don't know how to run a technical infrastructure. I've never run customer support before. I've never headed up finance before. I've done a little bit of sales and marketing. So I turned to these four or five guys that I work with and said, look, I, I can't tell you what to do because I have no idea what, what to do. But I can tell you what I'd like to sort of figure out where we want to go. We'll do it together. So we set some targets. And then I said, look, great. You draw me the map from where we set those targets. So for instance, we said five nines for the uptime of the infrastructure, which is I think eight hours of downtime unscheduled downtime over an entire year. You know, we said, what are our sales and marketing goals? And I told each of us, I said, we need to draw the map from where we are today to where we want to get there. And then we worked together. And I sort of acted really as a coach. I didn't really, I wasn't telling them what to do. I wasn't this authoritarian top-down leader. And it worked really well. Before I left, I left about 18 months later. We were on our way to doubling the business. I think we doubled in about two years from after that. Uh, We didn't, I didn't lose one employee 2008 certainly helped a little bit because there wasn't a lot, to, a lot of places to go, but we really turned it around. We turned our scores from, I think I asked our team to score people, uh, to send a survey out to score and sort of how we're doing. And I, this was before NPS was really popular. And we, we did it out of five and we got uh, 2.9 out of five the first time we did it. And when I left, it was 4.6 out of five. So all those things on the resume looked really good. But the best part was... Two of the managers that I was working with, the one who ran tech support and the one who ran the technical infrastructure said to me, I just wanted you to know the stuff that you made us do, I hated it. It was really, really hard, but I'm so glad you made me do it because now I know how to do that. And I decided I wanted to get more of that. I wanted to help more people to be more self-sufficient and figure things out for themselves. So about four years ago, I decided to do that. And I work with just a handful of customers, five, six, seven, eight, nine customers at a time. But it's a great, I, I finally know what a calling is now, Bora. You know, I, I would definitely do it for free. And, and often I do actually in COVID, I've given my services away many, many days of my services away. So, so that's sort of the circumstances that led up to it. It was really by necessity. Yeah, yeah lots of uh, good information there. So you would say that the outcome of that experience, working for that company, going through that exercise with the team in that environment was when for you, the light went off that, that this was something that you really wanted to dedicate yourself to in a full-time capacity. And is that right? Like that, that experience was kind of the one that sort of turned you from being an employee to a business owner. So it wasn't instantaneous. I left in 2009, something like that. I would say it was mid-2010 is when I left. I just stored it in the back of my mind. I had an opportunity to do another startup. It sounded really exciting. I wasn't going to be the head of anything. I was going to be the head of sales, but that was fine. Uh, I got to work with a bunch of really good people, a bunch of people that you and I worked with in the past, and I wanted to take that opportunity. So it, it really was a few more years before I did it, but I, I definitely put it in the back of my mind saying, this was something really interesting and I want to look into it. And my last company, it was in 2015 and it just wasn't working out. And, and basically I got let go. I knew I was going to let go. It was either I'm, I was quitting or I was going to get let go. At the time, I really kind of needed the money. My daughter was going to enter college shortly. So I was trying to put as much money away as I could. So I said, you know, let's, let's give this a go. Let's see what happened. And I did some research. Uh, I looked at a whole bunch of different places and books and operating systems and business frameworks. And I picked one that seemed to make the most sense to me. 
And that's where I started about four years ago. I'm not actually doing that anymore, but I'm using a lot of what I learned in the stuff that I do now. Yep. Okay. And um, you had said, uh, you know, there's a, a couple of things that I wanted to touch on. One is um, the statement you made around providing services for free, especially during this COVID environment. A question that I had for you was, how is your business different today than it was before, let's say, March 15th. Yeah, totally. You know, how, how has COVID sort of impacted your business? Not necessarily only from just a revenue standpoint, but more just in the way that you do business and, and the clients that you work with. Yeah, so definitely into the math. 93% of my income stopped. I didn't bill anyone for two and a half months and I was billing pretty well. My business had been doubling every year since I started it. So I was headed to a very good year mid six figure kind of year. And I lost, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars. The reason I did this was to help people and I didn't want to stop helping. So I talked to my clients and I said, look, you know, if you have time and energy to do this, let's keep going. It's great to have a disinterested third party like myself to, to help you work through this. And by the way, I also had hundreds and hundreds of coaches that I could return to as a resource. So if they needed anything, I had all these great resources and I offered it to them. And, and some of them took me up on it. Some of them didn't, or some of them didn't right away. The only thing that really changed was that they took advantage of it less. It was almost like since it was for free, they didn't want to do it. It didn't seem right or something. I don't, I, I don't know. No one's ever really given me the answer, but a couple of them took me up on it. You know, so I did some things. I didn't, then I just started giving my time away on like LinkedIn. I, I would do these hour, uh, hour round tables with anyone who wanted to join. I created with a bunch of other coaches, a framework around COVID, as well as a checklist that you can go through to say, okay, have I done everything? Have I missed anything? Just so you can at least, you're in, you're in crisis mode, right? And many of these businesses just fell apart. Or I have one customer whose business almost doubled because budgets moved to them from where they were. And even though it's a good problem to have, it was still a problem. They were like running around with chickens with their heads cut off and they knew it wouldn't last. So, you know, I just sort of wanted to plant things in people's brains so they could Think about, okay, we don't know how long this is going to last. We certainly know it's impacting us in some way or another. Our business has changed, but the fundamentals haven't changed. And let's focus on those, making sure we have those right. We might need to pivot a little or change some things. You know, I have one company who was one customer who was a, who is an apparel company and they lost basically most of their business. So they started making masks and you know, they pivoted to masks and they still do it. They make they actually work, work today. Uh, it's a pretty cool mask. So it's changed in a number of ways, but I think the through line of my business really hasn't changed. You know, my job is to help leaders focus on the few things that truly matter to their business and to their team and to their team members and their customers. And that really hasn't changed much. The only thing that really changed for is how often I do it. I do it a little bit less than I used to. <laughs> yep. And how about the, uh, your approach? How important in your line of work as a coach, uh, facilitator, lot of different ways to describe it um, is being in person and doing that face-to-face versus remotely. Can you still be as effective and create great outcomes for your clients in a remote environment? Yeah, you can still create great outcomes. It's a little harder because a lot of my job is actually not paying attention much to what people are saying, but how they're saying it and how other people are receiving it my job mostly is to get them to talk to each other and to surface things that maybe people wouldn't have done on their own. So let's say you know you were in a meeting and your boss was talking or something, and I noticed your expression change. I'm going to log that. I'm going to obviously let the boss keep talking until he or she has finished their thread. 
but I'm immediately going to go to you and say, Borja, you know, you, you kind of made a little face there. Can you tell us what was going on through your brain? I mean, I have a favorite saying that I stole from Reed Hastings, the head of Netflix, which is, you know, because silent disagreement is disloyal. If you disagree with what your boss says, you need to speak up because that's why I'm here. We're supposed, let's surface everything. You know, make sure that you understand each other. He or she hired you because you're good and you're smart and you have these skills and they want to know what you have to say. So keeping it to yourself isn't helping. So that's been a little harder. You know, Zoom's a bit tough, but there's still, if everyone has their camera on and they, they're sitting close enough, you know, I can do it. It's just, I can't see feet. I can't see other things, you know, because you can see people squirming in chairs, even yep. though their body hasn't changed. So I miss some of that, but I do catch most of it. I've definitely caught some people and said, hey, I just, hey, Beth, I just saw your face. Do that little wince. Tell us what happened. So it might be a little harder on me, but I don't know that it changes the outcome much in terms of the, the result of the meeting. It might slow it down a little. Okay. Now you've worked with a pretty diverse set of clients over the years, small, medium, large size companies, I imagine. How are they similar and how are they different? So when you work with clients of different sizes, do you find that there are a lot of sort of commonalities? And maybe just start by telling me on the small side, and this is really in terms of people and or revenue, how small do you go? And then what's sort of a big client for you? And then maybe lead into things that are similar and or different. Yeah. So full disclosure, I'm really expensive. So that automatically limits some people who can work with me because they just don't have the money to pay me. But I have the apparel company I was talking to you about. It's pretty small. They were, you know, if my business kept doubling every year, I would have been about the same size they were in two years that they were this year. So let's put it that way. <laughs> so they're pretty small. My largest was in the tens of millions, not quite a hundred million, but pretty good size. I'll tell you, since I pick my clients, they're much more alike than they are different. I look for three characteristics of the CEO or the head of the business or whatever they call themselves, head of company. And that is that they need to be humble. They need to be a lifelong learner. And then they lastly need to be very comfortable challenging the status quo. If they're not those things, then I'm going to have a really difficult time helping them. If they think they need to know all the answers or you know they're kind of arrogant uh, and they speak over people. I have fired myself from two companies and I have uh, had four other CEOs that I either said, no, I'm not going to work with you or I made it. So it was too difficult to work with me and they decided not to because I knew that they weren't enough of those three things. Other than that, they're all over the place, different uh, different industries. I worked with a flow meter company, you know, doing, you know, things on pipelines. I have the apparel company. I work with a study abroad company. I've got a lead generation company. I've got a chiropractor. So it's really who they are as opposed to what they do or how big they are, as long as they can afford me. Yep. So you're agnostic in terms of the type of businesses that you work with. You're more after specific characteristics or qualities that these leaders have in order to, to match well with you. And so do you find that when, when you sort of do the audit, if you will, or you look under the hood and you really assess things, that a lot of the problems that, that, that these leaders have are, are very similar? You know, or, or they, do you find that there's a lot of unique things that are, that are problematic for these, these leaders? You know, I'm curious to, to understand you know, if a, oftentimes they kind of really boil down to many of the same things that are preventing them from, from being successful or scaling their business. Yeah, uh, I think the only thing that probably happens the most often is I believe that we've we've sort of created this aura uh, or persona of a head of a company. And, you know, there's just sort of this hero level thing that they need to need to be. 
they need to know everything and they need to have all the answers or most of the answers or whatever it might be. I don't think it isn't necessarily arrogance. I just think that they have some level of responsibility they feel they have. So they sometimes they over direct, they over instruct. So a lot of what I do is I, I just get them to back off a little bit. And I say, look, you know, again, as I mentioned earlier, you have these five or six really smart people you hired. You went through this really probably rigorous process to get them here. You think they're the right person for the job. You want them to do the job. So, you know, Steve Jobs, you know, why would you hire them and then tell them what to do? You should hire them and they should tell you what to do in their part of the business. And you want to make sure that it aligns with your vision, you know, and the core values of the company and all those kinds of things. But for the most part, you want to let them go. I would say that's probably the most prevalent. It's not with every one I have, and it's certainly different degrees of the spectrum. In terms of other stuff, the biggest issue that comes up, so I generally work on three or four major areas of the business. One is people or teams. The other is strategy and execution, which really go together. So I kind of make them one thing. And then the next is cash. Most people have trouble with people. I mean, people, we're all crazy. We're kind of highly irrational, highly emotional, uh, impulsive beings. And you're trying to get some stuff done and, and you're like hurting cats and, and that sort of bothers you. So sometimes you you need a little help, right? So I've studied a lot of neuroscience and a lot of cognitive psychology and I bring that in. I say, look, you, you need to understand that, that we don't act the way you want us to act. It just doesn't happen. So you've got to understand that. And I weave a lot of that in so they can, they're, they're more empathetic and they're more compassionate with the people that they have as opposed to getting frustrated and then maybe sort of taking over for them or whatever it might be, that would probably be the thing that happens most often with the others. Yep. I've heard you say this before, which is uh, fire yourself from the job. You know, I think some of these things that you say, and this is why I've had a successful business, are easier said than done, right? Yeah. And so, you know, when is it time? Like, when would one know to sort of fire themselves from the job, right? So that means, you know, just not be sort of in the weeds as much as they needed to be early on in sort of the, the cycle of the, the, the company's growth? Yeah, great question. So my simple answer is as soon as your business model starts to prove that it's working, then you immediately have to figure out how to start firing yourself from your job. All of you in the leadership team, especially the CEO, has to fire herself from the job. Not all at once, right? And not completely, because there'll still be some stuff you got to do. You got to do reports and you've got to do, you know, one-on-ones and there's still managing of people and that kind of stuff. But you should start teaching other people to do the stuff that you do that actually is the operational part of the business. Your job should be looking about working on the business instead of in the business, which is sort of a famous little phrase that most people say. Unfortunately, when I, when I work with leaders, it's usually when they're stuck. You know, they've, they've, hit a, they've hit a wall or they've grown actually so crazy and so fast that, that their life's their lives are a mess. And it's not too late, but it's certainly late. Good to have started well before then, but most people don't because, you know, we think, hey, things are going great. Everything's everything's working well. Revenue covers a lot of issues. I used to say as a, as a head of sales, I used to say, you know, revenue cures a lot of things. And I found out that actually revenue masks a lot of things. It doesn't cure anything. It's just the measurement of which you, you put on the business at one level. But it's actually not even the best measurement, in my opinion, unless you're trying to sell your business and, and you want a multiple of the top line, you know, which is pretty rare. You're going to get a multiple of EBITDA. Then revenue really doesn't matter. It's cash is where it's at. You want to you want to figure out how to run your business and how much it's going to cost you to run your business as you grow it. So you want to be looking out two, three years ahead, at least as a, you know, you want to look way out, you know, sort of an ideal, this whole Jim Collins thing, right? With BHAG and vision and all that stuff, which is really important. But once you do that, you want to reel it into about three years, give or take. And you need to be very vivid with your team. So 
they're clear on where you want to be, how you're going to get there. And then your job is to figure out, okay, who, who should be doing what? Because you can't do everything, obviously. Teach people or bring new people in, whatever it may be. And that's where you should be spending most of your time of those three years is just sort of, you know, I used to say you kick them back into play, right? You're not actually in the, in the game, but you're, if they go out of bounds, you sort of push them back in. That should be most of your job. And most of the time it isn't. I, the last couple of years I spoke to, I spoke at a bunch of different peer-to-peer advisory, like Vistage, EO, YPO, those kinds of things. And I asked the same question. I've spoken to probably four or 500 CEOs over the last four or five years. And I asked them about what percentage of the time do you spend working in the business, doing a day-to-day job? And how much do you spend on the business thinking about where it's going to go and that kind of stuff? And it's almost always 80-20 or 90-10. And it should be the other way around. Yep. Do you think that that's the right ratio though, 80-20? Or is it possibly 60-40, 70-30? And I ask that because as a business owner myself, again, uh, I'm in plenty of need for for someone like yourself uh, to help guide me and and make me better. But um, I think sometimes, you know, there's this constant conversation around, you know, micro versus macro, right? In the clouds, in the dirt. And I yeah. think, you know, in my experience, and again, this isn't going to turn into uh, very specifics about me, but more <laughs> just in general that I think is is applicable to what you just said when you talked to the four to 500 CEOs, right? They're, they're 80% in the business and 20% not, right? Yeah. Day-to-day wise. I think sometimes when you pull back, Oftentimes, you know, you pull back for a period of time and then when you reinsert yourself, you you sort of discover a lot of issues that a- occurred over those last 30 days when you decided to sort of uh, remove yourself, if you will, from the day to day. So I'm curious, is that really like a hard and fast 80-20 or is there some wiggle room there where you think striking the right balance, you know, is key, but making sure that more of your time is not spent in the day to day? Yeah. So there's nothing ever I say is sort of hard and fast, right? And you astutely asked earlier, you know, what kind of business sizes do you have? And the small business I was telling you about, there were only, I think, six or seven of them. So, you know, the head of the company is, she's a player coach. So she certainly has to do that. But working with me, I'm constantly reminding her that her job is to figure out how to do less of the work and more of the thinking. But as long as it doesn't affect the business too dramatically, Unfortunately, so how many people are in your business, but I'm by myself. So what I've done is clearly I have to do just about everything, but I outsource stuff. I use Fiverr for things and I ask other people to help me on certain things. I have other coaches that that will help me, but I look for tools to make the things I have to do just super easy. Like I use Wave just to invoice people and just takes care of itself, right? I just, it takes me two minutes to invoice people. I set up so it's on a credit card. I don't have to worry. I don't do any credit stuff. I don't show up unless... They have already paid me for my session, uh, so I don't have to worry about spending time and money doing that. I want to spend my time uh, coaching, reading, and providing an opportunity to attract new clients that I might want someday. Those are my three main things that I do. Everything else, if there's something else that I do, I try to just stop doing it. If I get to a point where I'm going to need help, let's just say I get to a million dollars or a million and a half dollars, and I'm just going to need some help, then I might hire someone part-time to do some of those things. I'll keep an eye on my website. Maybe I'll hire someone who can write and they can do more of my writing for me because I'm not a good writer anyway. But I'm, I've already thought through which of those things I would give to someone else before I need to. So if the time ever came, I already know what to do. And hopefully I've already established some relationships with people that when the time comes, I'll just bring them on or hire them. You know, I have a bunch of sales. I have a bunch of marketing people I know. I have a bunch of other finance people I know that could come in and do my books and that kind of stuff. 
So you have to weigh that. You have to weigh, you know, my contribution to the business and the business not meaning making it work, but the business in terms of driving profit and cash into the businesses should be your main focus. If you're doing a bunch of stuff that you can't tie back to profit and cash, I would say you should ruthlessly ask the question of yourself, do I really need to be doing this at all? And then if, if not at all, then is there some other way I can do it? I'll give you one example. One more example, which you and I have connected on a few times on is I read somewhere that it takes eight back and forth to set up a meeting on average, any meeting just with someone like out, out of the building. So I said, well, that's crazy. That's, you know, if you do that, if, even if it's, you know, two minutes to write the email and then to do this and then check your calendar and do that and check and do it again and go back and forth, it's still going to take 10, 15 minutes to set up a meeting. And if, if you have 20, 30 meetings in a week, do the math, that's hours. So I just use Calendly and I say, great, you want a meeting? Here's my link. You can pick a 15, a 30 or a 60. Up to you. I never have to do anything again. That saves me hours and hours a week. Just do one thing. That's the kind of mindset I'm trying to put into the leader's heads. It's not necessarily not doing stuff, but it's also doing stuff as efficiently as you can. Great. Uh, you talk about autonomy. This is related to sort of the team, right? Define what it means to give people autonomy. So I, I kind of already alluded to it, right? With the example I gave on the circumstances is, the head of the network infrastructure, the head of customer support, and the head of sales, which was Rick Haupt, by the way. I said, look, let's argue on, on the direction, right? And the outcomes we're trying to reach. Let's, I definitely want to argue on that. And let's come to something that we can align in on. I don't want to just tell you what you got to do. You, you need to be bought into it. But it needs to be something that's probably not, it's a stretch, but not too much of a stretch. It should stretch us because usually when we stretch ourselves a little bit, we reach it. And then I said, go. What do you need? I said, and, and so come to me. You know, do you need resources? Do you need bodies? Do you need money? That's my job. Your job is to tell me how it's going to work and how it attributes to this thing. And they just went. And that was it. You know, I, I gave them autonomy. I mean, one of the reasons I, I had to, I didn't, I couldn't argue with them. I couldn't say, you know, that particular router with the, you know, you know, X, Y, Z thing is not as good as, you know, I would lose that argument every time. I, I wouldn't have any way to do it. So I had to trust them. So you got to hire well, but then if you trust and you give them autonomy, you get there. I, I think I read a thing, and I can't remember what, what it was, but it was something like the people who um, allow autonomy in a business, oh, it's right here. In a study by Cornell University following 323 small businesses, those that offered autonomy grew at four times the rate of top-down control-oriented firms and had one-third the turnover. If that's not enough data to at least have you give it a try, I don't know what is. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you're referencing uh, names from the past. I, I like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You talk about neuroscience and cognitive psychology a lot. Yeah. You know, you have a, a background. You know, you've taken particular interest in that. I think you have certification. You're certified by an organization, if I'm not mistaken. Yep. Tell me a little bit about how that experience, background, those credentials are helping sort of you in, in the work that you're doing for your clients. Yeah. So can I tell a story about you, Borja? Sure. So I use it on you and you probably didn't even know it. So I started studying neuroscience about 15 years ago. So before Be Free. And if you remember when uh, CJ took us over and we had to consolidate the sales team and I had you and like three other people, I had to choose three out of like four people and I had to figure out who to choose. And I interviewed all of you the same exact way. And I asked you a bunch of crazy ass questions. I don't know if you remember the questions I asked you. I asked something about toilet paper maybe or gas stations and I asked you some situational questions 
because I wanted to know how you think. I wanted to know how your brain worked. I wanted to know if, you know, because I wanted to give you autonomy, you know, and, and do your own thing. I wanted to be able to know that I could trust you and I didn't have to tell you what to do every day. And that's what you want to understand is, is how the brain works. Because everyone's brain works a little bit differently. Fundamentally, they all work generally the same, but then we apply it in different ways. We have different interests and passions and, and those kinds of things. So I use it there, but I also use it. So for instance, if you want to run a really good meeting, you have to understand that it doesn't necessarily matter that much who's in the meeting, although you should have you know people who have the skills and knowledge, ability to some degree. If everyone's at a certain level, it almost doesn't matter who's in the meeting, but you need to make sure that, that everyone in the meeting gets their say, that they speak about the same amount of time and everyone else, and everyone feels heard. Why? Because the brain likes that. The brain likes to have autonomy. It likes to feel like there's status, right? I'm just like everybody else. I'm being heard just as much. No one's drowning me out. No one's interrupting me. There's this thing called SCARF, which I learned from the Neuroleadership Institute, which you alluded to. And SCARF stands for status, certainty, autonomy, relatedness, and fairness. And it's based upon the premise that's been around for decades about the brain generally seeks reward and tries to avoid threat. And these five things are the social aspects of where it moves forward reward and away from threat. And our brain, depending on who you believe, somewhere between 10 and 50,000 years ago, the research says, our brain had its last major upgrade. So it hasn't really changed much in 10,000 years, at least, probably more. And the problem is it's not designed for the world we're in because it doesn't do well differentiating between physical threat, you know, threat on your life or threat on your, on your health, and social threat, almost the exact same way. The, the same parts of your brain light up when you're feeling threatened in some way, you know, physically, like someone's going to beat you up or someone's chasing you and you, you sort of feel like your life versus, you know, just you're scared of speaking in public. Your brain acts the same exact way. It goes into flight or freeze mode. So leaders inadvertently trigger threat. Uh, and the story I like to tell there is the and this has probably happened to you, I hope I never did it to you, Borja, but I might have because I didn't know this very well then, is let's say you're in a meeting and maybe you're running the meeting or you're kind of leading the meeting and I'm in it as well and I'm your boss and I tap you on the shoulder and I, and I look at you and, and the meeting's over and I say, hey, Borja, you got a few minutes like if you would come back to my office. And immediately you're probably thinking, holy crap, what did I just do wrong? You know, I probably didn't do the meeting right. What's going to happen to reputation? You know, is this going to be the last straw? Am I going to get fired or is something bad going to happen? And your brain, while you're walking behind me back to my office, is going through all these machinations of stuff for most people, especially if there isn't a lot of trust between you and me. And by the time you sit down in front of me, again, in my office, right, which is a status symbol where I'm behind my desk and you're in front of my desk, so I'm covered and safe and you're out in the open. I've triggered all these things. I've triggered status. I've triggered certainty because you don't know what's going to happen. You know, I've probably triggered autonomy because you have no control of the situation whatsoever. You're in the out group and I'm in the in group because you don't know what's happening yet. And you don't know if it's fair yet. So you're probably going to lean towards this doesn't seem like it's fair. So I start talking to you and you're probably not even listening to me. Even if I, you might nod and whatever, but I bet if I asked you 10 minutes later what happened in that meeting, you couldn't really remember any details because your brain wasn't working. That part of the brain wasn't working. Now, you could do the exact same situation where I said, hey, Borja, and I could sit in the meeting with you and say, you know what? Hey, that was a really good meeting. But you know, one of our core values is, is Kaizen, right? Let's keep improving. Let's getting better. So what I'd like to do is why don't you put like a lunch or a coffee or something on my schedule in the next week or two. And I'd like you to bring three things to that meeting that you thought went really well here. 
one or two things that you thought, you know, looking back, you know, we probably could have done that better. I'll do the same thing and let's work together to make this the best meeting. We'll keep meeting until you and I agree that, you know what, I think we've made this about as good a meeting as we possibly can. Usually the outcome you're looking for is the same, right? I wanted you to have a really good meeting, but the approaches were completely different. I didn't trigger any of those things, right? We're on the same level. We didn't leave the room. We're going to lunch or coffee together. I'm telling you exactly what we're doing, how we're doing, and I'm giving you control of the situation. We're both together. There's no in and out group. And that probably seems fair to you, right? We don't do that. We don't think about those things. So often we inadvertently trigger these threat responses. And then we wonder why our people are scared or concerned or their brain isn't working because we did it to them and we didn't even know we did it. So that's why I love neuroscience and leadership. Yeah, it's all connected. I think for the record, since uh, you didn't say this, uh, I don't think you ever offered me that job. I think uh, I was one of the four, but didn't get it. Was that correct? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> you know, we're still talking how many years later? This is great. Yes, exactly. But it was a lesson for sure. I do remember that interview. I remember the office. I remember sitting in your office at that table and uh, I think I was pretty stumped by that question. Um, so, <laughs> you gave it a uh, shot. You did pretty well. You, I think you tried to figure it out. Yeah. And I just had to, and the, the problem was, it wasn't that I didn't want to keep you because I certainly did. I could only keep so many. And I just had to, you know, you just, I think you were the, you were the cutoff, right? I can only keep an amount. And the other three did a little bit better than you did. So no, I know that. I'm okay with it. It, it. it took me 20 years to get there, but... Um, <laughs> You're finally over it? <laughs> I'm over it just because you uh, were so kind to accept uh, this uh, discussion. <laughs> Excellent. Finally, um, monkey off my back. I, I was waiting for you to, to, to make that comment that I hadn't been offered the uh, job, but uh, <laughs> that's okay. So, you know, one of the things that I, I as a business owner, you know, co-founded my agency yep. and... Uh, we're small. We're a boutique uh, firm with about 12 full-time people. You know, hiring, you talk about this uh, as well, you know, having learned from being a bad hirer, right, of people. And so we struggle with that too as a business. You know, we, we have a lot of checks and balances in place. We, we have a pretty, you know, thorough interview process where we have people do different things as part of that process. But but we've made mistakes, right? We, yeah. we, we've someone was really good. And, and then, you know, once they're sort of in the day to day, they don't perform as well as we had thought or expected they would. So what did you learn from being a bad hirer? Yeah. So, so I'll back up a little bit and answer a little more of the question you're asking. So what I've, as you know, I'm a big researcher. I love to try to figure out you know, how to do things better. And I found that generally the interview process is about the worst way that you could hire someone because we have so many biases that we're not aware of. And it colors our feeling of the person. You've judged your person in within seconds. And based upon those judgments, often you're changing your feeling about the person just from those initial impressions. And it could be maybe the way they smiled at you, or maybe they walked in the room or shook your hand, you know, all those really weird things. So the only real way to hire someone really well is to, is to figure out do they have the skills and are they a good cultural fit? And then just give them a try, right? Give them a 90 to 120 day try because after about 60 to 90 days, they start to become who they really are, not the person you interviewed. You know, they've started to relax a little bit. Their best foot isn't always forward. But by then, you know, you're, you're two, three months in, what are you going to do? You got to fire them and you know, it's really tough. You want to give them a chance. You know, what does it say about me that I, you know, keep losing all these people? I, you know, you, whatever. But that's not always easy to do. You, you can't just, you can't afford it, right? I mean, if you're a small company, you know, you're paying these people clearly and, you know, do they work out? Do they not? If you actually do the math, it's cheaper if you do it that way, but it still doesn't feel cheaper. 
So what I learned specifically was that salespeople are arguably the best interviewers on the planet. They get interviewed on a regular basis by skeptical customers. They know how to study. They know how to figure stuff out. They know the, they know to try to figure out the answers to the questions. So I stopped asking questions that they usually got, you know, asked, like, give me your biggest weakness, you know, tell me your greatest strength, put yourself in this position where this happened or that happened. And at some point, you know, especially if you've been in sales for five, 10 years, you've answered all of these questions at least once before, and you know how to do it. So I would do things that no one ever heard of before. And I don't think I actually interviewed you when you first came in. I think Jeff did. Uh, and I probably asked a couple of them in our in our thing. And if you might remember, they were kind of odd. You know, they were hypotheticals. They were, you know, if you could meet people living or dead, you know, two of them, you know, who would it be? You know, what would you talk about? Because I wanted to just get a sense of who you were. I've actually added one thing, which I didn't do with you, which I loved. I do it with salespeople. You could probably do it with other people. But with salespeople, it really works well. Is I tell them at the beginning, I'm going to ask them to teach me something at the end of the interview, something they know really well. And I let them chew on that while I'm interviewing them. And then I say, great, you have any more questions? No more questions? Great. Teach me whatever you're going to teach me. And if they can't teach me something they know really, really well, or they can't find something that they know really well, then that's, it might not nix them, but it's certainly going to question whether I should hire them. I would probably would bring them in for another interview later on, but that's what I do. Uh, the, the research says that the best way to get, if you're going to do interviews, the best way to do them is a structured interview, which is what I do with the four of you guys or the five of you guys, is I ask the same exact questions to all five of you. I didn't change it. I didn't do anything. I did everything exactly the same. So I could have at least some level of continuity and it would take some of the bias away, right? So that's, that's sort of what I did and what I've learned over the years on hiring. So the average hit rate on hiring is 50%, right? What's what's another hit rate of, of 50%? Flipping a coin. So Basically, you could flip a coin and do just about as good as if you went through a, a rigorous interview process, which is crazy. It's crazy. Any good stories on uh, someone teaching you something from- uh, Yeah, I learned how to kite surf, which I really would love to do, but I don't think my body would, would like it too much. <laughs> I learned Morse code, you know, a couple of things in Morse code. I learned how to, to roast a Roma tomato, which was pretty cool. Um, so yeah, some right. fun things. I like kite surfing. That sounds uh, pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, I, I enjoy. It. I mean, obviously, that's not something that you can teach someone on a couch, but sure. it was fun. <laughs> At least they walked me through it, the process they had to go through, and you know, he did a really nice job. Actually, I wanted to hire him, and he didn't want to work for for us. He bought out of it, so I was kind of bummed. Yep, but I got a good guy anyway. The Morse code guy made it, and he was really good, and, and I'm still friends with him too. And I've fired him twice. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, you you never fired me. You just didn't hire me That's for that. Right, there you go. <laughs> I don't know if I'd be interviewing you if you fired me. I wouldn't feel as uh, as good about it, probably. That's true. But uh, that's great uh, that you, you guys are still friends despite uh, you know firing him not once but twice. Yeah, he's a, such a good guy. <laughs> I like that. You know, I've, I've talking about this subject. You know, oftentimes I've been told by CEOs in terms of what advice they give, and you know, this is not coming from a coach or a facilitator or anything like that is, is fire fast, right? You know, don't overinvest in people that you know are not good matches for the role, for the business, et cetera. So my question to you would be, what advice would you give someone who has someone, they're still onboarding, they're maybe 60 days in, into the onboarding uh, process, but they are having second, third thoughts about this person, right? They don't feel like they're, they're doing a good job, but they, but they don't know 
when to pull the cord. I had heard, um, and I and I should Google this, but there was a CEO of a well-known company who basically said, "We don't fire people; we treat them as if they were our family." Uh, yeah. Would you ever fire your son or daughter, or kick them out, or disown them? No. So their culture was: we invest in people. Once they're hired, we don't fire them. We don't believe in seeing them fail. We're we're supportive of them. What's your opinion on that sort of mentality? It, it sounds really good, but I think in practice, very difficult to execute on. And maybe it's one of those things where depending on the business and the size of the business, there might be luxuries that they can afford that a small business like mine can't afford where everybody needs to carry their weight or there's really a, a huge impact to the business. So there's a couple of things there. When do you think uh, you, know, you need to take action? And do you believe that, you know, that just continuing to support someone even though in the back of your mind, you really don't feel like they're a good fit. Does something like that make sense? Yeah. So no offense to your CEO friends, but I think, you know, fire fast, hire slow. But you got to go deeper than that because that's like saying, well, eat healthy. Okay. What does that mean? How do I do that? You know, does that mean no carbs, less carbs, calories? You know, you need to be a little more instructive, I think, on how to do that. So while I agree with the adage, you, you have to have done the work up front, to make sure that you understood what are the pieces, what are the seats, right? Jim Collins talk about make sure you put the right people in the right seats, but he never actually says, how do you design the right seat to put the person in, which I think is a hole in one of his things he's doing. But I think his adage is right, right? People first and then everything else, right? But of course, the people first, I think is, are they the right fit, right? You do the the delayed airline study, right? Or, or um, adage, which is if you could sit in an airport you know, when your flight is delayed for two or three hours and you're, and you're looking forward to just hanging out with them and chatting with them and learning and talking, then they're probably someone that is a good fit, right? In the organization. If it's someone you don't want to talk to, you, you know, you're going to go spend yourself, you, you know, you get your lounge thing. You're like, oh, I'm sorry, I got my lounge thing. I'm going to go in there. I'll come out when the flight's ready. You know, that's probably someone who doesn't fit in your organization. So, so fit is really important. And then the next is you have to create, okay, what's the seat they're in? How do you know when anyone in that seat is doing well, right? What are the things, what are the activities, the key activities they're doing, and how do I measure that? And if they're meeting all of those things, but you don't like them, and that's a really hard problem, right? Because sometimes they're called a toxic A, right? They're getting everything done, but nobody likes them. So then you have to look at behavior. If you watch your team and they're avoiding this person, or they're all going out to lunch and, and they're not inviting this person, or you hear this person cutting people off in meetings and being kind of rude, then I'd still say fire them. It's hard to do that because you're going to lose their productivity. But I will tell you, I've had four leaders come to me with this exact same problem. And I gave them the same background. I said, you know, do they fit in your organization? No, nobody really likes them. Okay, they're producing. Yes, they produce really well. You know, and I, so I don't want to get rid of them because they're going to be a huge hole in, in the thing, in the business, you know, in the team. Every single one of them, when they finally got rid of them, because they finally did, came back to me and said, I so should have done that sooner. Because what happened was everyone else stepped up. This person, because of their dominant personality and maybe their productivity, everyone else just said, well, whatever, let them do it, right? And then, but when they finally got rid of them, and there was probably some resentment with the leader, they were resenting the leader because, you know, he never got rid of that person. This person's making our lives miserable. How can he not notice this, right? So they took it personally. And then finally, when you did it, you know, the sales came back, the team stepped up, you know, I went in, 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 a, in a, an operations group and the CEO came to me like a month later and said, you wouldn't believe what, you know, 
Mary and, and Susie and John did, they just started doing all this stuff. It, it was like we never got rid of her. Like, yeah, that's it's amazing how that happens. But you don't know that until you do it. And, and you're scared to do it because you're afraid something's bad is going to happen when with it, when you leave that hole. But it almost never happens. It's amazing. Yeah. I mean, I think uh, the, the consequence of keeping that employee is far worse to the greater good of the company, right? The, the, the hole than, than keeping them because, you know, obviously you're creating a bad uh, environment or situation for, the, for those that are, that are still there. So I think you have to sort of consider that, right? I agree. The, the implications of keeping that person versus not having them there is uh, easier said than done. But, but if you think about, think about it in the long term, I, I think for me, the, the decision is quite clear. Right. Exactly. Well, and the other thing you didn't mention, Bora, is, is they lose trust in you. They, they lose respect of you as a leader Yeah. because they're like, how can Bora not see this? Uh, or why is he ignoring it? And you don't want that either because, you know, you want to be the leader. You want them to follow you. And if they don't really respect you or they, they won't completely not respect you, but they'll, you know, let's, let's call it a battery, right? The battery will drop a little and it'll take a while for that to come back. But if you do it two or three times, what happens is your best guys go right? They just leave. As soon as a really good opportunity comes along, they may not look for it, but they're going to take it. To be honest with you, I did that myself two or three times. I just waited. I waited it out and then a really good opportunity came along and I left. Yeah. No, I think, uh, I also think to your point, you lose credibility as a leader because I think at that point, your team knows that you are taking into account cash or revenue over their happiness, Right. Yeah, and fulfillment uh, and satisfaction. And you want them to look forward to coming to work every day. Exactly. Right. And, and you know, what do they say? The, the disengagement rate is 70 something percent in, in the United States. Most, most employees are disengaged. That's not good. Yeah. I have a few more questions for you that, uh, that are top of mind. Hard versus soft skills, EQ versus IQ. Just your opinion on which is a more important skill to be successful as a head of business, CEO, co-founder, founder, whatever uh, yeah. it may be. So I think leadership ain't a thing. I'm with Marcus Buckingham. Leadership is not a thing because there's no set of attributes that you can attribute to, to a set of successful leaders that are exactly the same. Steve Jobs is different than Warren Buffett. Bill Gates is different than Larry Ellison. Sam Walton is different than Jeff Bezos. Yet they're all great. They're all leaders who are successful. Whether they're great leaders and people love them, I don't know. But but in terms of success, financial, etc. These are people that we talk about, right? Herb Kelleher was a crazy bozo. He would dress in clown suits and purple ties and it worked. So I think there are only two things that any leader needs to have. And the rest of it, they just need to be themselves and be the best selves they can be, right? Lean on those things as much as they can. And that is you need to have vision and you need to share your vision. So one, you have to have it and share it, right? And meaning not share it, just talk about it. You actually need to write it down and say, you know, hey, I see when this company is successful or when this company is successful, you know, when we come at three years and we describe what we've accomplished and how we've affected lives, write that down. This is the difference we want to make in the world and share with everybody. That's your vision, not a vision statement, which if you read, you know, if you type vision statement into Google and they all read the same and they're different companies. One makes washing machines and the other makes, you know, uh, skyscrapers, you know, and they're the same, which doesn't really work. So I think you have to have a vivid vision. I'm a huge fan of vivid vision. And the second thing is you have to have courage because if you have a vision that goes out, there are going to be forces that work against it. And there are going to be times that it's challenged and you have to have courage to stick with your vision. If you've done the work and you're paying attention to your employees and you're paying attention to your customers and you're really digging in, 
you will muster the cards to do it. You know, if you look at Steve Jobs or Jeff Bezos, you know, some of our more modern guys, there were plenty of people. Steve Jobs got fired. You know, they kicked him out. And, you know, he said, look, he knew it in his head. I'm coming back. He was trying to figure out. He was buying himself time. He did next. Then he went on Pixar and did that. And then he learned. What he did, he said, well, where, what did I do wrong? How did I screw things up? And he, he made himself a much better leader when he came back. And that's in part why they took off, right? And became the first trillion dollar company in the world, whatever it was, six or seven years after he came back. And when he came back, they were 90 days from running out of money. I mean, that was pretty phenomenal. But I know I have friends and family who worked for Steve Jobs and they did not say nice things about him as a human being. And there were certainly things about what he did. He didn't have a lot of integrity. He wasn't honest, but you know what? He had something that enough people loved more than the stuff they didn't like about him. So that's why I don't, I don't believe it's honesty, integrity, charisma. I always rail against that. And like, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't work. It, it's not true. That, that's not how it works. It hasn't been proven that way. I think people should study followership. And by the way, if you type followership into Google or whatever, there's no word. Yet that's the thing all leaders have in common. They all have followers. Whether they're good or bad leaders, they still have followers, right? Yeah. Okay. Followership. I actually wrote that one down. Yeah. Look um, it up. I've asked Amy Edmondson. I reached out to Amy Edmondson, who's a Harvard Business professor at HBS, Harvard Business School. And I said, I think the next thing you should do is study followership because she studied teams and other stuff. I would love somebody to study followership. And then, because that's how you can build good leaders, right? If you can teach them here are why people follow, do these things and you'll get followers. I don't know how many you'll get, but you'll get followers. Yep. We're not talking about uh, Instagram or uh, no. Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> Just to be clear. Yeah. No, there, these, there are, are these are people who believe what you believe. They're going to give you your blood, sweat, and tears. They're going to go out of their way to make your vision come true without you even asking. That's a true follower. Yep. You talked about vision and, and, and I want to be clear, vision and vision statement being different. Is that correct? Yeah. I, I talk about, uh, I love this guy's book, Cameron Herald. He wrote a book called Vivid Vision. He's written a bunch of books. He's actually in my book. He, he um, wrote, he's on the back of my book. I'm one of the blurbs. He wrote one of the blurbs and he wrote this thing called Vivid Vision, which I, I truly believe. And he worked over years to get it right. He first called it Painted Picture, then he turned into Vivid Vision. And it's a the book itself is like a recipe book, right? If you don't have it, Borja as a leader, I would highly recommend that you get it. It's like an hour and a half read and it's instructive. It says, okay, here's what you do. Go to this place, go to a place where you feel comfortable and zen and whatever, no distractions, bring a pen, bring a piece of paper, and then here's what you do first. And then you do this and here's what you do next and you do next. And he gives you all the steps to go through it. And you know, I'm sure your first vision won't be your best vision, but it's still better than not having it, writing it down and sharing with people. At least you got to give him something. And I did this recently with one of my clients and, you know, he didn't want to do it. He's a pretty good writer, but he just didn't have time. And I said, you know, it's okay. I get it, but it's going to make a huge difference. You're going to need to trust me on this because I've just seen it. And so we finally did it. It took him about five or six months to write it all down. He did the first version of it. And and this never happened before. He blind copied me or he, he CC'd me on it and he sent it out to his entire team. And so I get to read all the comments back and they were saying, I am so glad to work here. This was such a wonderful thing to read. I am so proud to be part of this company. I can't wait to help make this vision come true. You know, it was, they were just overjoyed with knowing what was in his head. It was so wonderful to be part of that. It's just a cool thing. Very cool. This is a, a more very sort of tactical question. How do you train soft skills? 
So what do we mean by soft skills first? Are we talking how to manage people? Just in general, I would say for me, soft skills are your ability to develop relationships with customers, um, you know, not necessarily over Slack or email, but in sort of a, an oral way, right? Yeah. Talking to them on the phone, meeting them in person, just having the ability to communicate effectively verbally versus in, in a written form. Developing those skills, that, that, that is a critical skill in any sort of client services business. Yeah, um, I think you obviously need to have the fundamentals. You need to be able to put two words together in a sentence. And you know, as long as you have those fundamentals, you went to college or high school and you, and you learn how to do that, or you brought up in a family where you encouraged to you know, make arguments and that kind of stuff. But I think if you, want to, if you want to have really good soft skills, it needs to be less about you and more about them. And so when I hired salespeople, one of the other things I didn't mention is there were three attributes that I always looked for in a salesperson that I hired. And they were, they need to be curious. And when you're curious, you actually care about the other person, what they're saying and digging into what they're saying, as opposed to trying to tell them how smart you are and all the things you know. So one, that's about them. Next is compassion, which to me, compassion is empathy, meaning you're able to try to figure out how, how they're really feeling, putting yourself in their shoes. But then you're also prone to action. To me, compassion is empathy with action. And again, that's about listening to them, but then helping them, right? And so one of the things that I did, like when I started to be a, a much, much better salesperson, and I wasn't, when I was probably 23 to 26 or 27, I was not a great salesperson. And and I started, I always asked, why, why is this not working? What isn't happening? And, I, and I, again, I was studying the brain, I was studying cognitive psychology, and I was making it too much about me. And so I started to incorporate this one question because I asked myself, how would I make it so they know? Because I wanted it to be about them. I had it in me but I wasn't articulating it well, right? Because I was taught, you know, hey, you got to know your product, you know your features, your benefits, you got to know your 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 um, technical specs, all those kind of things because I worked in the software industry forever. So what I found was I started to incorporate this one question that I always did at the beginning of every prospect meeting or every meeting that was with a potential customer or with a customer themselves. I asked, okay, we're going to be together for an hour. I would like each of you to describe for me what would be the ideal outcome for you at the end of the hour. And then I would always look for the bully with the juice, which is the thing I learned from Sable. I love that saying. You know, the person in the room who really drove everything, and it wasn't necessarily the decision maker or the, or the person with the title. And I want to make sure that I learned from him or her. But I also went around everyone else, and I wrote everything down. And then I went through, and I tailored my entire presentation to what they said. And I, at the end, I went through, and I checked off everything. I said, you said this was really important. And I look at the person. Was that okay? Did I miss anything for you? Did, did you get what you need? And I went through every person. And then when I was done that, I said, look, you know, if, if this happened, I'd say, you know, my best customers love the things that you mentioned, but also thought these things were pretty cool as well. Could I take a few minutes and just explain those to you? And by then, you know, they're kind of eating out of my hand because I'm, you know, I'm totally into them. I just acknowledged who they were. I, I gave them everything they wanted. And now I want to give them a little more. So like, you know, they, they, I had developed such trust, even in a short amount of time. And, and I was sincere about it. It wasn't a technique. I mean, I really wanted to help them. And, and there were many times, not many, there were a few times where when we went through everything and they told me what they wanted, I said, look, we don't really do that. Or we don't do that really well. I, you know, I don't know that you want to work with us. You know, and I would give them a name of, of another company. I said, this company probably is what you want. They focus on those things more than we do. And I had two or three of them give me referrals later in life. It was amazing, right? I actually turned them away and they referred business to me. Yep. You know, and then the last thing is, is I wanted you to have, I call it ambition, but I wanted you to act as if you were your own business. 
I wanted you to, to be autonomous, right? Even though it's my territory, whatever, you got to act like this was mine. And, and you were looking for resources, me being one, other people. I wanted to know that you could, you were doing that, not waiting for to be told what to do, you know, or given permission to do it. I'd rather have you, okay, Bill, I, I did it for these reasons and I screwed up, you know, sorry about that. Then to say, you know, is it okay if I do this? Is it okay to do that? That's what I look for. So I think soft skills are much less about you and more about someone else. If you have that, great. By the way, if you don't have that, then I don't, I recommend that you don't be a leader. Or don't be a leader of people. You can be a co-founder, but don't have anyone report to you because they're not going to like you very much. I really like how you said uh, now twice uh, in response to this question, don't make it about yourself, make it about the customer uh, or the other person. I really like that. And I also like how you talk about curiosity as part of that, right? Knowing your customer. And I know somewhere, I think in the book, one page 166 in that section, you talk about your experience at the data company, which was Live Vault, and an exercise you would do to get customer feedback. Really, really liked that. And I also like how you just talked about you not persuading someone who was not a good fit for your solution for the sake of convincing them, right? Uh, you had a long game approach to that relationship, which ultimately paid off to your point. All really, really good points. Yeah, um, yeah appreciate it. Yeah. So the um, final question I have is, uh, you know, even myself being a, a heavy user of LinkedIn, I don't use social media. I don't use Facebook. I haven't been on Facebook in over 10 years but I do use LinkedIn heavily as a, a source to sort of consume content for, you know, for business uh, connections, uh, things like that. There are a lot of people that do what you do, right? Similar to my business, I, I, I'm a, an agency owner and we're very commoditized. Yep. A lot of people that do what you do or at least proclaim or have a title that, that indicates they're a coach, a facilitator, however they position themselves. So for someone that's, that's looking for your services, I guess, what are the things that they should be thinking about or what are the things that make you unique or someone like yourself unique in a very sort of crowded space? Yeah. So uh, I don't teach individual. I don't coach individuals. I coach teams. And uh, there are three things I think that make me unique. One is that I go in with the premise that I'm not coming in here to tell you how to run your company. I actually believe that you already know how to run your company better than it, you know how to make this company great. I believe that you know how to do that. Maybe not every single individual I'm talking to, but as a collective, they already know how to do it. And you just need someone like me to come in and ask some really basic questions to help you focus all that great energy and, and resource that you have on the right things. Especially entrepreneurs, we easily get distracted by the, the shiny, the revenue. And if you look over time, that is almost always the reason that your business struggles or goes out of business, right? Most businesses die of indigestion. They do not die of starvation. They try to do too many things and then they run out of money. So that's one of the things I, I, um, I think makes me different. The other is, as I mentioned before, is I like to pick my clients. I'm looking for a mindset. I'm not looking for an industry or a size or whatever. I'm looking for a mindset uh, with folks. And then everything that I teach, I do myself, right? I have my own one page plan. I filled it out. I keep it updated every quarter. And you've gotten some of my stuff. You see at the bottom, a lot of my stuff says be exceptional. And that's actually my one phrase strategy. That's my strategy for myself is I need to be exceptional. I need to keep learning. I need to keep getting better. I need to make sure I'm, I'm listening to my clients and getting stop 
I, I ask for one or two times a year from all of my clients, give me a start, stop, keep, so I can keep getting better. You know, from their perspective, I hear the same thing over and over again. I'm like, okay, that's something I probably need to look at. If I hear just one thing out of eight or nine, then I might not do anything about it unless, you know, I decide it's an anomaly and I want to look at it. So those are the things that I do, I think, that make me different. The other thing that I don't tout, but I think makes me different is there are really very few people on this planet that have done 10 startups. There are fewer people who were five for six. Now, I wasn't a founder, but I was certainly part of it. And I generally was an integral part to at least four of them. So I have this, I like to say, I've made a lot of mistakes. So I can help accelerate your growth by helping you to not make the mistakes I made so you can make your own. So I think that's sort of a, a, a fourth thing that I would throw in there that helps me to be different than most people. And, you know, and especially leaning towards that sales and marketing side, right? Where a lot of people need help. So I think that's that's generally, you'd have to ask my clients, you know, I do have one client. If you look on my website, I'll give you this one thing that they said, which I thought was probably the most, the best compliment I ever could have had for what I'm trying to do, which is Bill is the best value per word of any coach or consultant we've ever worked with. And these guys were 50, 60 years old. To me, that is the ultimate compliment for what I'm trying to do. I'm not trying to spend your money or, or waste your time. I'm trying to get you to be able to fish yourself as quickly as possible. And then hopefully you'll keep bringing me on because I keep adding value beyond that. If I don't, then yeah, you should get rid of me. It doesn't get better with the value per word. That's for sure. That's someone who's looking at the uh, cost against the, the... Yeah, he was a CFO, believe it or not. <laughs> yeah, there you go. That connects the two dots. Lastly, pick a number between one and 200. One and 200. 85. All right. I'm going to ask you one final question, and it is, would you like to be famous in what way? I don't want to be famous. If I happen to be famous because of what I'm doing, then that would be fine. I have no problem with it. But if I do, then I would want to be famous for my purpose, which is to basically make a dent in the universe. I'll actually read you my purpose because I don't have it totally memorized and I'm sort of winging it here. So my purpose is to spend each working moment helping to advance the human condition through having enlightened leaders focus on the very few things that truly matter to their customers and teams. I see myself as a really unknown Simon Sinek. I'm an optimist. I'm always looking to help to make things better. I'm trying to figure out why things are the way they are. He's just way more famous than I am. And a better, <laughs> and a better speaker probably too. Maybe larger followership? Way larger. I think uh, yeah, mine doesn't get out, outside 100. It gets uh, well over 100,000, maybe millions, right? But after today, you're, you're going to be really close. I try, That's right. With, I your, with your massive audience. I'm looking forward to that. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> between my family members, I think you got six people right there. So, all right, all so right. You just double the size of my audience. I'm telling you, man. <laughs> this uh, question came from the book of questions. I have this uh, at home. It's, it's, right, yeah, uh, yeah, sure. I'm sure you're familiar with it. So thank you for uh, answering that. And that's uh, a wrap. Thanks so much for uh, doing that. Every time I talk to you, the few times I talk to you, I always feel good from the conversations that we have. You have a lot cool. of uh, great experience and a lot of great knowledge that's very practical versus theoretical. So yeah. I really like that. Um, Can I do a so little shameless, shameless plug for stuff? Absolutely. Yeah. Tell us about the uh, book you wrote that uh, is out on Amazon. Yeah. Amazon, and, uh, yeah. iTunes and Audible. Yeah. Really quick. So yeah, I have a book. It's, and I think it's a good book. People like it. You read it. 
It's getting some good reviews, which I love. And, and by the way, Borja, if you haven't done a review, please do. And you can find it on my website. I actually have a link to the book on my website. I offer my book for free. If you just want to download the PDF, you can download the PDF. It's free. But if you want to get it on a Kindle or a paperback or, or Audible, then you got to pay for it. And my website is really where you can find me. And now that you've told me that I need to put my contact information on different pages, you can get my email address. You can set up a, a meeting with me. So my website is the best, which is catalystgrowthadvisors.com. So that's the best way to get me. Great. Yeah. And like I said, I really like uh, the way you explain things. I think that's one of the reasons you wrote the book. You had said this in, in a conversation you were having with someone that I heard or that I listened to or like you were doing a lot of talks and, and people would come up to you and say, hey, I really like how you explain things. It, it makes a lot of sense. And that sort of uh, was the impetus for you writing this book, right? Exactly. Yeah. Because I'm a little slow, Borja. You know, it takes me about an hour and a half to watch 60 Minutes. So I wrote a book that I could read. Uh, so that's where it came from. But it's great because it's, uh, like I said, it's, it makes it very easy for someone like myself who likes more of a practice-based you know, uh, approach to things. A lot of things you can implement on your own from reading the book. So a lot of good tidbits there. And yeah, so thank you very much for doing this. Good job. Appreciate it. Thanks, Bill. All right. Take care, Bora. Bora.